everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 27. We're going to talk a little bit today about coloring of wood. I've got several different questions that refer to not only maintaining a color, but altering the color of lumber. So before I get into that, I do want to say thank you to my new patrons, Matt and Spencer, who sponsored the show this week. Again, if you're at all interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lumber update. And I've had a few questions for those who want to support the show, but aren't really into the whole recurring subscription thing. Patreon does allow you to make a one-time donation. So that's something that I know would appeal to certain people. Again, go to patreon.com slash lumber update and you'll be able to find out how to do that there. So again, thank you to everybody for supporting the show. I got some interesting feedback this week via Twitter. It is referring to the episode where I was talking about coppicing and pollarding. And there is a Japanese term called daisugi. It's a Japanese forestry technique where specially planted cedar trees are pruned heavily, like coppicing, and then the shoots that come out become perfectly straight, uniform, and and not free lumber. It's an ancient method of forestry. It sounds very much like um, uh, coppicing, like I was talking about before, but It's kind of like, imagine a bonsai tree that's been specifically pruned into a shape. This happens over the years where this is pruned into shape to the point where finally they just start growing straight up. And it's it's ridiculous. It's very odd looking when you see one of these because it looks like a bonsai about to about six feet off the ground. And then there's these just dead straight, like straight edge straight shoots that come out from there. Very, very cool. I'm going to try to find a way to link to this. What I may end up having to do is link to actually Twitter because the whole thing, there's actually a fair amount of conversation on this that goes on in this Twitter stream. And a gentleman by the Twitter handle of Wrath of None has, seems to know a heck of a lot about this. And he's got a lot of photos that he's shown of it. it, explains a lot of the history and kind of the socioeconomic reasons behind it. It's very, very cool. So I'll see if I can't produce some sort of permalink URL to this because there's a lot of really cool info. But again, it's the same idea behind coppicing. This has just been taken to the nth degree and it really only works well with cedar because of its fast growing nature. But because of this, it's, you know, because it's so straight, because it's not free, it's incredibly strong timber. Uh, Imagine riving out a a stick for like a Windsor chair. You rive it because you get that continuous grain and gonna be really, really thin, yet very strong and flexible. So in Japan, where you've got everything from, you know, tsunamis to typhoons to earthquakes, Mother Nature tends to throw a lot at them. So they have come up with this method of forestry that produces not only very quick, renewable timber, but highly strong, resistant to the elements timber. Very, very cool stuff. Um, I want to thank Jayhawk for initially pointing this to me. And um, no promises, because Twitter's kind of an odd beast, but I'll see what I can do to link to this. If nothing else, I'll take some screenshots and include it in the uh, show notes on this post. Very cool stuff. Thank you for that. So I do want to jump straight into my inbox as I've got quite a few emails that are going to take some time to work through. First and foremost, I got an email from Jeremy. Actually, Jeremy sent this in to Wood Talk and he said that Shannon Shannon recently mentioned that he thinks the slab market will be oversaturated in about six months, that there will be no money in it. Can you elaborate here or on that quote, other Wood Talk podcast? So as the other Wood Talk podcast, I figured it makes sense to pull it over here. So Jeremy, really what's going on here, and a lot of what I predicted has actually already started to come to bear. 
whenever a product becomes very popular, somebody comes out with this unique idea and then somebody else copies it and somebody else copies it and everybody jumps on that bandwagon and then suddenly everybody's got either the same thing or a, you know, an iteration or variation on that original theme and the market becomes hypersaturated with this stuff. Well, this is what's going on with the slab market where, you know, it started as, as the individual kind of, um, urban Sawyer or the backyard Sawyer guys like Matt Cremona that were able to saw whatever. And the most efficient way to do it was through saw it into these wide slabs and people started building and designing around it. It was a cool new look. So then the smaller yard retail yard said, okay, well maybe we'll start getting some slabs and they contacted their sawmills and the sawmills were like, hell yeah, we can do that. That's easy. You know, normally they're asking them to quarter it or cut for yield and cutting out all the bark and all the defects and things that come with slabs, just doing through and through sawing is so much easier, lower, you know, lower labor costs. So they were suddenly started producing it. And then the larger retail yards said, now we want some of it. And then even some of the wholesale yards and online distributors started advertising. We have slabs, we've got slabs. Well, meanwhile, back in the sawmills, they're loving life because their labor has gone down dramatically. Everything they do that they normally defect out, they're not having to defect out anymore. The yield per log, whereas before it used to be on a good day, 50% of that log was turned into boards. Now 100% of it are very close. 95% of that log is now being turned into these slabs and they are absolutely loving life and they are producing this stuff like crazy. Well, the problem with the slab market is the buyer, you may buy a slab and you build a table out of it. And you're like, oh, that was cool. Maybe I'll buy another one. And then really, maybe you built two, maybe you built three, and you're kind of done with it. And then you get the guys that build a line around it, the furniture makers who actually build a line around it. And they, you know, sell, let's just be, let's just say, hey, they sold a hundred of those things. Well, the, the trend starts to die off and now they're not really making them anymore. And the demand for the slabs just plummets because people have kind of grown tired. The fashion has moved on. But meanwhile, there's an enormous quantity of slabs out there. And we, the lumber yards, are putting these huge prices on them because it's like figured wood. It's this unique, you know, incredibly uh, live edge, wide, beautiful looking figure and grain. So we're not really pricing it per the board foot. We're pricing it as a set price that is way more than it would be per board foot. Well, those sit on the shelves and they sit on the shelves some more and they never turn. Meanwhile, that business, that retail yard, that wholesale yard, that is an asset that sits in their inventory that really weighs down their ledger. Here is some, some asset we have, but we can't convert it. We can't sell it. We can't liquidate that asset. So it just ends up affecting how much they can buy other lumber. So then they start figuring out, well, how can we, how can we get rid of this? So already I've started to see several yards who have had these huge stocks of slabs or suddenly ripping off the live edge bark and selling just a wide plank. Now it's an S4S plank or, or at least an S2S plank, but it's straight line ripped and the live edge is gone. So now it's just a wide board. Well, but then that wide board suddenly is subject to board grading and a slab generally has all kinds of other stuff in it. It's just the way trees grow. So then they start cutting away the defects. And the next thing you know, you've got a traditional FAS board that's six inches wide, maybe eight feet long. And they took that slab and they converted it into two or three regular old boards. 
or none at all because of the high amount of figure or crotch grain or whatever, it's considered a defect in the traditional NHLA lumber grading. So then they realize, well, damn, not only can I not sell the slab, I can't even cut it up and sell it for boards because when I do, those boards are worth pennies because they're like number three common grade at that point. So suddenly these yards are looking at it going, well, we can't move the large slabs anymore and we're losing our shirts if we stock them. So they just have stopped bringing them in. So what you're seeing on the market right now is old material that has been sitting around not turning for six months to a year. And buyers of these lumber yards won't touch a slab with a 10 foot pole because they know even if the market turns around and suddenly becomes really popular again, they've got enough inventory already in stock and they've been burnt once recognizing that inventory can't be turned nor can it be transformed into something else. So they're certainly not going to stock up on it anymore. So yeah, that market I think has run its course. We might see um, a little bit of a, of a a resurgence when people figure out, well, let's have fire sales on this stuff. Um, and maybe some people will start buying again because the price has become really, really low. But already we've seen that unique pricing, that figured board pricing die away. And you're starting to see lumber yards who are selling that slab just on a board foot price, just based on volume. So if cherry in that yard is selling for, you know, four quarter cherry is selling for $6 a board foot, they take the board footage of that slab and you know, multiply it by six and that's the price. Whereas it could have been in the past 10, 15, 20 times more than that board foot price. That has already happened. This pricing per board foot has already happened in a lot of yards and the slabs are a lot cheaper than they used to be. The slabs that are still really, really expensive, I would question that yard, are they actually selling them? Like, or are they just up against the wall and yeah, they're not really taking up that much space and then we've already paid for them. And if we move them, great. If not, no big deal. I know a lot of yards like that, that have really interesting, unique boards, pieces of Buddhist temples, things like that, that have these astronomical prices on it and they may never move them. But at this point, it's not really affecting them. It's not taking up any room. So eh, they just leave it there. I, I personally think what's going to happen is... <laughs> This fire sale that I talked about earlier is going to kick in and suddenly all these slabs are just going to go for a song. But what you may then have trouble with is the the makers, the craftsmen who are trying to make furniture and make a living from the furniture are not going to have as many customers interested in that style anymore. So then they are going to end up ripping up those slabs, cross-cutting those slabs into smaller pieces, and maybe they'll use the figure for a drawer front or seven drawer fronts or something like that. And that's what's going to happen to those slabs. The whole idea of the intact, wide, and long board with two live edges is going to fall away. And you're going to, you know, it's great to build a piece of furniture out of a single board because you get a great grain and color match. So that big, wide, long slab is going to be cut into little tiny parts and made into an end table. So yeah, I'm not only am I predicting that anymore, I'm already seeing that happen from coast to coast in North America, where many of these yards that were real big on slabs don't even talk about them anymore. Moving on, Tommaso wrote in on uh, color changes. He said, freshly cut wood can be very colorful. Think of the rich uh, purple of cedar, that would be aromatic cedar, uh, or the rich purple of purple heart, of course. The amazing green of mulberry and, and black walnut, the purple of purple heart, the, the orange and green and gray of cocoa below. It all fades or darkens with time. Is there any way of preserving that color? Short answer, Tommaso, no. The sun will always win. The change is happening 
uh, because of UV light. It's reacting to the extractives in the wood and UV is breaking down those um, color forming agents. Um, oh shoot, I just forgot the chemical name for them. Oh, whatever. It's oxidizing them and it's breaking apart that chemical structure as the UV bombards it. It actually breaks up those chemical bonds and it causes the color to fade. So you can delay this by using, you know, a strong UV inhibiting finish like a spar varnish or any UV heavy um, uh, um, inhibiting finishes. I already said that, didn't I? And multiple coats of that, like six, seven, eight coats of that, get a really heavy finish with a lot of the UV inhibitors in there. And really, that is, we're talking about a high solid content in the finish itself that is actually reflecting the sunlight rather than allowing the sunlight to come straight through to the wood. That will certainly slow it down. The other thing you can do is artificially color that wood by adding a dye and actually adding more color to the wood as the wood itself may change color underneath it, the dye that you put on top is maintaining that color. And that sounds kind of silly. It's like if you've got purple heart and you want to maintain that purple color, you're just going to put a purple dye over top of it. Well, not only are you inhibiting uh, the UV because it's like you've painted. I mean, that's all dye is. It's, it's pigment. You know, and you have just put pigment on the surface and covered up that wood, but at least if you have diluted enough that the grain still comes through, you at least have that color pigmentation on the wood that's going to keep the color longer. But you also have to recognize that dyes are not color fast either. There are some color fast dyes and stains on the market, but put color fast in quotes because everything loses eventually to the sun. It will eventually fade it out. So then that's the other option. If you really wanna keep that color, keep it out of the sun, keep it in a dark place, lock it in a hermetically sealed chamber in the dark and it will maintain its color. So if you wanna maintain that purple, just put it somewhere where no one can ever see it, which also begs the question, if no one can see it, does it change its color? You know, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? I don't know. So um, yeah, there really is not something you can do without actually refinishing it annually. And I'm talking about stripping the finish off and sanding back the oxidized darker outer layers of the wood to expose the brighter layers and then finishing it again. And that's what, you know, a lot of people will do with um, outdoor furniture. They're stripping away that film forming finish and then sanding back to bare wood, putting it back on again. Anytime you have uh, like a deck that's gone gray or an Adirondack chair that's gone gray and you want to restore that color, you can apply an oil over top and you will get a little bit of the color back, but it will still be this dark weathered looking color. What you have to do is actually sand or plane away that very, very tiny outer skin of gray and then refinish it again. You'll get that color back. But if it's in direct sunlight, that color like Purple Heart will fade in an afternoon. You know, cherry will darken in a couple of hours in the sun. There's really no way to stop that. Um, the other thing you can think about is for lighter woods that you want to keep them light, you don't want them to darken up. You can also use a UV finish, but you really want to try to use a water-based UV finish. As I talked about earlier, what makes it a UV um, protective finish is the high solid count in that solution that is the finish. Well, the high solid count in an oil-based finish is going to introduce that amber color to the wood. And if you put that onto maple, you're gonna see that ambering that comes out right away. If you use a UV water-based finish, you're gonna get that, that water white look that a lot of times people talk about. And that will help keep that holly or that maple whiter 
uh, longer. And the UV inhibition in the finish itself will prevent the sun from darkening it as well. So yeah, short answer, no. Long answer, you can delay it or you can just paint it. So there you go. I hope that helps, Tommaso. Uh, speaking of coloring, I had uh, a question from Matt on ebonizing versus fuming. He's about to build, um, if I remember correctly, it's a bed. And um, his daughter wants it very dark. And he was thinking this could be an opportunity to build it with this oak that I have and to fume it. And if you fume white oak long enough, it will get pretty dang black. Um, so the question was, why? Like, what's going on there? So it's the tannins in the wood, and white oak in particular has an incredibly large amount of tannins. And tannins, really, tannic acid, the, the derivation of the term tannin actually goes back to the tanning of hides. The, um, the chemical compound that you would pull out of something like white oak and out of other plants and things, ground up and turned into tannic acid is what's been put onto hides in order to tan them. And um, that's kind of where the whole thing came from. Little little fun cocktail party fact there. So the high volume of tannins in white oak, when you take steel wool, uh, or excuse me, you know, we're, we're not ebonizing yet, we're, we're, we're fuming. When you take uh, ammonia and you build a little tent around your piece of furniture and you take your ammonia hydroxide and you stick it in there, um, it reacts to the tannins and it chemically uh, changes the chemical structure of the wood itself and it darkens it up. The good thing about this is it is color fast because it's not like um, this is not a, a UV exposure type thing. This is actual chemical change that's going on. So the grain is still really exposed. So if you paint it, yeah, you can get it black, but you're going to cover up a lot of the grain because the, the pigment and the, the paint itself is settling in the grain and kind of leveling it out. The fuming process doesn't do that. It's literally just changing the color of the wood and the depth of the grain and all the grain that you're seeing is going to stay the same. Moreover, in something like quarter sawn white oak, you're going to see that reflect pop even more. It will darken too, but because of the different density of that reflect and the different amounts of tannin in that reflect, it's not going to darken as much as the grain around it. So it can be a really good way to pop that reflect. Keeping in mind, if you expose that quarter sawn white oak to the uh, ammonia in the ammonia tent for a really, really long, long time, those reflex will still get darker. And over time, over a long period of time, it will actually start to blend together because there's still tannic acid in the reflex. It's just a different uh, density and different absorption amount. So it can be a really great solution because it will be color fast to that point. It's going to stay that way. You have now chemically altered that wood. The problem is it's incredibly dangerous. You know, in order to do this, the ammonia hydroxide you're using is not your regular household cleaning ammonia. This is stuff that you have to special order. You basically have to, you know, sign yourself up for the no-fly list when you start buying ammonia because now the NSA is watching you when you do this. You know, you got to build a tent. You got to be very cautious because the ammonia hydroxide will actually cause skin burns if you get it on you. So you've got a lot of protective gear going on. Be very, very careful. The other thing is it can be really difficult to get consistency. So if you built that piece of furniture out of white oak, but the white oak came from maybe four or five different trees, each one of those boards is going to change color a little differently. Now, the longer you put it in there, that maybe the more unified it could get, but maybe not. 
They really can't predict how long it's going to take for a particular board to turn a certain color. You also can't predict that it's going to be as uniform. It might actually come out a little blotchy because again, it's reacting to the tannic acid in the wood. And it's not like there's a uniform percentage, you know, a uniform molar count of tannic acid through every square inch of that board. It's going to vary from one to another. The same reason those medullary rays won't color the same because there's a difference in the tannic acid due to the density of the wood, due to the structure of the wood, all of that stuff. So you have to be very cautious here when you start fuming to recognize that you might not end up with that perfect surface that you were thinking. And one side of the piece of furniture might be a different color than the other side because it was a different board from a different tree or a different region. You know, you're buying white oak on a lumber yard. You may not know where that stuff's coming from. You certainly don't know that it's all coming from the same tree. So buyer beware in that respect and take it slow. Don't just set it in the tent and walk away for three days and come back and expect it all to be uniform. Also, three days would probably be very, very dark. So, you know, there's there's pros and cons there. The other option here would be to ebonize the wood. The same thing's going on here. It's still the tannins in the wood that are causing this ebonization, but the, the kind of traditional way of doing this is taking like iron nails and putting them in vinegar. And that actually causes iron acetate to form. It breaks apart and rusts those nails. Today we use steel wool. Sorry, short break. The uh, heater kicked on in my shop. I haven't haven't quite figured out that it's warm enough that I don't need the heaters in my shop right now. So I didn't want that noise in the background. So yeah, today we'll take steel wool and you put steel wool in vinegar and the same thing happens. The steel wool essentially dissolves. It rusts the iron and the steel wool and it forms iron acetate. That iron acetate then reacts with the tannic acid in the wood and you get that really, really dark color. So at face value, the thing you have to be looking out for is a wood that's high in tannin count. So white oak makes great sense here. But it's also a little funny because if you we call it ebonizing, but ebony definitely does not have a, you know an open poured coarse grain structure like oak does, especially, I mean, white oak is a little better than red oak, but I mean, ebony is, is, is like no pores at all. And this stuff is really lustrous. It polishes in the rough to this incredible shine. So, you know, you're going to get a dark wood, but recognize it's not going to look like ebony. It's not going to have that same luster unless you do a bunch of pore filling at that point. And then we're getting into, you know, a whole other issue there. So do recognize that while you may be getting that dark color, you may not be getting the exact same look. So a lot of people have resorted to using other woods that um, may be closer to ebony. So you can actually ebonize maple. Maple, most wood has tannic acid in it, but they have maple has dramatically less tannic acid than white oak. So what you do is you kind of pump up the volume on the tannic acid by doing first a wash coat of a tea or even go and buy tannic acid from like leather and tanning suppliers. You can actually buy the stuff, mix it up, and paint it onto the wood. So you get that initial wash coat, which kind of darkens it slightly, but you dramatically increase the amount of tannic acid on the wood. Now you come back with the, the um, dissolved um, iron acetate, paint it over top of that, and it will immediately react to that tannic acid, and it will darken and create that black color of maple. And now you've got a close-grained wood that has that dark color. Just recognize that you may have to do a little bit more to get the maple really dark. First of all, you're starting with a lighter wood. Second of all, you're artificially introducing the tannic acid, so you got to be a little careful how that goes. But this process is going to give you a little bit more uniform color than you would with the fuming.
because you're actually introducing tannic acid. You're painting it onto the surface and then putting the iron acetate over top of that. So you will get more uniform look there, which can be a really good thing. The other thing, India ink or paint or dye. You know, you can take your maple, you can take your white oak board, and you can actually just put black pigment onto the surface. The reason, you know, India ink works really well because the viscosity is very, very low. So you can still see that grain show through. Plus the viscosity being low means that it's going to seep into the wood deeper. So it's not just this skin deep thing. If you accidentally scratch it, suddenly you've now got this bright white or light brown streak on the thing. The ink will penetrate a little bit further. Same thing with the dye. This I would use a dye and not a stain. There may be, find some really dark stains out there, but Stain and dye are two different particles. Dye is a much, much smaller pigment particle. Very, very finely ground dirt, essentially. And if you use a black dye, like the India ink, it's going to penetrate further into the wood. It's also going to allow, it's gonna settle into the kind of little lumps and bumps that, that make up wood grain. So that wood grain is going to continue to show through if that's what you want. If you really just want a uniform surface that's black, you might just be better by doing something like black paint or even black milk paint to give you a little bit closer to the wood feel. So there's a, a couple of different ways to do that, but essentially using the vinegar and um, steel wool or fuming is the same process chemically. Well, kind of. It's different chemicals, but it's still responding to the tannic acid. So that's the, the one unifier. If you're using a wood that does not have a high amount of natural tannins, whether you're going to fume or whether you're going to ebonize, you're going to want to pump up that tannic acid by doing the wash coat of tannic acid first. Or, you know, the the, the real um, mellow way of doing this is making a solution out of tea. Buy some Lipton tea, make some iced tea and paint that onto the surface. That's all tannic acid in there. That's the kind of puckery mouth feeling you get when you drink tea. It's tannic acid in there. So there you go. That is how we would go about ebonizing or fuming in order to get that really dark black color. Very good question, Matt. It's fun to kind of put on the lab coat and talk uh, chemistry here. So then I got a question over Twitter from Sean and he just basically asked, are branches used by the loggers? Like we have things like MS, uh, MDF and OSB and particle board that's basically just ground up wood flour introduced into you know heat and pressure and some kind of glue. So where's that coming from? And that brought up the question, are the branches and all that stuff being used by the loggers? And the answer is yes, they are, but it might not be the same loggers. So when a logger goes into the forest and they've determined here's the tree that we're gonna cut down, they're there for the bowl, for the central trunk, for the lumber producing part of the tree. So they will cut that down. They will then limb it, cut off all the limbs because it's nearly impossible to drag a tree out with causing massive amounts of damage while it still has all those branches on it. It's also really, really heavy. So they'll cut the, the, the central bowl off just below that first fork in the branches, that lovely crotch wood. They cut it off right below there because again, that crotch wood oftentimes is seen as a defect. That major fork and all the branches and leaves above it are then left on the forest floor, the log is dragged out. Maybe the next day, maybe a week from now, somebody comes back, whether it's the same logging crew or not, will come back to actually break that down because good silvicultural practices say you don't wanna just leave that on the ground because it's actually going to um, cause more harm than good. Eventually it will decay and could feed the soil, but it, that 
takes so long in these larger parts that you actually end up may inhibiting the growth of some of the smaller trees around it. So they want to break that up and drag those limbs and branches and all that detritus from the original tree out of the forest, leaving the forest floor clear so that it's easier to navigate your way through, but also you get the continued growth that you want that's going to feed the trees in in a healthy managed forest. So those things are chopped up into smaller bits, loaded into a truck, and dragged off and and mulched. Or in some instances, they're actually chipped right there in the forest. That product is then sold to a bunch of different companies for a bunch of different products. I mean, cellulose is in like 80% of the products on the market right now. That cellulose is coming mostly from the trees. And that's where this stuff is. These ground up branches, ground up twigs, even leaves, it's all used in cellulose for everything from making paper to making you know something obvious like mulch for your yard to making MDF, OSB, and particle board. And each one of those is gonna be a slightly different product. For instance, oriented strand board, OSB, does require a slightly larger chip. Some people actually call it chip board. So there is actually, um, you can't just sell ground up tree branch to an OSB manufacturer. Generally though, the people who make OSB also make particle board, they also make MDF, because they're buying these huge loads. They are then sorting by the size of the chip and they, they you know, like a big sieve, shake out all the smaller stuff, leaving behind the bigger chips. Bigger chips are carted off to one side of the plant where OSB is made and the finer stuff is carted off to the other part to make particle board and the really, really fine stuff is carted off to make MDF. So it's all being used. Um, even the sawdust, like from the, the mill where I work, the sawdust, we sell it. Well, we use a lot of it to power our own kilns through our own boiler, but we produce too much sawdust, so we always have a surplus loafed over. And there's generally one or two tractor trailer loads of sawdust being sold and carted up the hill every single week. That stuff is then taken off to a bunch of other places. As I said, the cellulose is used in uh, so many different products. So that is the one good thing. There really is... There is money to be had in this stuff. So it's good forestry practice to remove the debris from the forest floor, but it's also just leaving money on the floor to do that. So most logging companies either will do it themselves or they have a subcontract with a company that specializes in this and has the chipping gear and and is is set up for it, will come in behind them and remove all that debris from the forest floor and it is then turned into something else. So that's the good news. For the most part, forestry done properly is is highly renewable, uh, very sustainable, and really does not have any waste product. Um, I guess heat. <laughs> That's the waste product of everything though, right? So it's good stuff. You know, granted I'm biased working in the lumber industry, but I'm always really excited to see just how no trace is left behind when these people go into these forests, cut down logs. You would never know they were there except for the stump that has been specifically branded, oftentimes RF chipped and in some instances, has trees growing up around it already. So very, very cool stuff. So I think that will do it for me this week. Interesting um, uh, a bit of questions. We're talking about color, we're talking about the slabs, and talking about using up branches. So thanks to everybody for submitting those questions, which leads me to my next point. If you do have questions about logging, about lumber, about wood, let me know. I want to see them. Um, I want to hear them. 
I want to read them. So you can email those to me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can go to lumberupdate.com. There's a form you can fill out there and submit your questions that way. You can record your voice memos and email those voice memos to lumberupdate at gmail.com. So thank you very much. Uh, Oh, I should also say people have been asking me questions on Instagram. People have been asking me questions on Twitter. I've said in the past, try to funnel them through the site, but you know what? Who cares? Just get me your questions. I love to hear them and I love answering them. So thanks for listening, everybody, and go buy some wood.